On this episode of the History Worth Saving podcast, we're talking to Chris Adams, a master of his own art, the art of, well, cultural studies. The Okefenokee Swamp has been his home for most of his life. He's learned just about everything there is to know about life in the Okefenokee. And you think, well, what does that have to do with art? Well, the art of living, the art of survival, the art of sustaining life. That is Chris's profession. That's his art. That is his course in life. And when you start hearing people talk about a young guy who has perfected this and not only perfected it, but has gotten to the level where he can teach people that, my friends, is history worth saving. And Chris Adams joins us right now. Are you in the swamp, Chris, as we speak? Are you down there near the Okie? Well, I'm in a swamp this morning. I'm over near Lakeland, Georgia this morning. You're in a swamp. They're, they're not all the same. There's vast differences between uh, the different uh, the different environments that make up these swamps down there in South Georgia. Isn't it? That's true. I mean, they're all not one and the same. They've got their own characteristics. Yeah. And you, you got interested in this how? How did this all come into your mind? Well, I'll tell you, from a very early age, uh, my grandfather, who passed away back in 2004, I recall getting out of preschool and he would drive me around and show me wood ducks or I recall seeing a bald eagle one time. He'd take me to go see cows. And uh, every Saturday morning, we'd watch Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin on the Animal Planet. And from that, it just sort of developed into what I do now. It's always been a, a lifelong passion of mine, wildlife and, of course, history. And you've been able to marry these two together in a way that, a, that few people have ever been able to do. Uh, not only, I, I don't want to call it a reenactor, you're a cultural, more like a cultural uh, studies guy. You have a, a, a great Facebook page, by the way, Wiregrass uh, Ecological and Cultural Project is the name of the page. And folks can go there and see what I'm talking about. You you have just immersed yourself in this. And a guy who's been on this show, who's also a good friend of mine, Wade Peebles, who I think knows more about the old ways, especially uh, from in Georgia, where we're doing this show at, uh, but just the old ways of, of folks who really lived and, and carved out an existence uh, all across the state. I thought Wade was just this deep well, but Wade says, no, no, you need to meet and talk to Chris Adams. <laughs> so that, Chris, in itself, is it makes you truly a master of your art. And I think that that's why uh, certainly Wade suggested we, we have you on, and I'm, and I'm so glad this has worked out. Talk to me, though, a little bit about the the ecological piece, because this is a huge piece uh, that a lot of folks have forgotten about. Why is that part of it so important? Well, when you talk about the usage of land, you can't talk about the history of place without talking about the presence of its people. And you can't talk about the people who dwelled there without talking about the landscape that shaped them. So they're inseparable. And when it comes to the project that I kickstarted recently, years recent, I've noticed there's a total neglect, uh, at least to an extent, of people not understanding the culture that derived from this area that we know as Wiregrass, Georgia. And the Wiregrass country, it, it extends from just about coastal Georgia all the way across to Columbus, 
into the southeastern portion of Alabama and covers most of northern Florida. So it's quite a wide area. My focus is on that South Georgia, North Florida area. And we have a culture that I like to call cracker culture. You know, Georgia, back before we were the peach state, was known as the cracker state. And this is talking about the people of the backwoods. You know, when most people hear the word cracker, they think of it as a a derogatory term. But if they're using it that way, they're using it incorrectly. You see, Shakespeare who we know is one who really coined this word, in his play King John back in 1594, he writes, What craker is this who beefs our ears with an abundance of superfluous breath? Basically, he's saying, who is this that won't hush up? They were (laughs) braggarts, boasters, lively talkers, and storytellers. That's synonymous with anybody you'd call a cracker today. Of course, it has many different connotations over the years. Some people will tell you we got the name from our forebears driving cattle or oxen with long plaited whips. And uh, some townswoman would see the cowboys coming in and they say, here come those crackers again. So it's got many different meanings. What I embrace it as is a term of endearment, noting someone who has been in one place for a long period of time. And that's my family. Uh, We've been on the upper Satilla River for nearly 210 years in what is now Atkinson and Coffee County. Sure. But you see, the reason I started all this, uh, family ties and all, is you go toward the coast of Georgia and into Charleston. You've got Geechee culture, the Gullah Geechee, sweet grass baskets. And, you know, they have really embraced that and brought it to the light. You go up to the mountains and... You hear about the hill culture, the people who live in the hollers and who came forth from the mountains and during the Depression years, you know, the revenueers and the moonshiners. But they embrace that. For South Georgia, we don't have a lot of that anymore. There's no place that, I hate to use the word capitalize, but there's nowhere that capitalizes on that, really. The closest you can get is going to Tifton to the Georgia Museum of Agriculture run by uh, Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College or a few other select historic sites around this area. But there's not much being done. People for so long have tried to bend the land to their needs. They've bent the land to submission in a lot of places. Uh, big cities come to mind. But the, the culture that you are telling the story of, they really used the land as it was. And they, they figured out how to sort of shape their lives into the land. Uh, talk about that just a little bit, because even what they did and what they harvested was a result of this. Well, I tell you, like I tell most people on my tours, you see, I'm a, a tour guide and a wildland naturalist down in Okefenokee Swamp. I care people out there every day. And my main focus is not just giving them the eco perspective, but also that cultural perspective, understanding why these people lived here, how they lived here. And you go to a place, if you can imagine South Georgia 150 years ago, in most places in the uplands, it was a never-ending stand of longleaf pine timber. And in the swamps, it was thick and grown over virtual jungle. But people like the the Chesser family that moved to Okefenokee, many of the swampers or the crackers that came to the wiregrass Uh, They did so after the Revolutionary War, around the turn of the century, the 19th century. Uh, 
the government could not pay many people for their service in the military in terms of gold and silver, but they offered them newly ceded Indian lands down here. Now, you could go to middle Georgia or north Georgia and draw a land lot of like 40 to 50 acres, good fertile land at the time. Or if you were a, a backcountry Scots-Irishman family, uh, you would be enticed by the fact they'll give you 490 acres if you settle in this area that's good for nothing more than cattle grazing. What brings you into that even more is the fact that the Spanish, a couple hundred years earlier, brought cattle and hogs to the region, and all you had to do was go out there and put your mark and brand on them, and that's how you amassed your wealth. These people utilized what was around them. Uh, they used pole logs to build their homes, their outbuildings, smokehouses, cribs, and, of course, they reared their livestock. They raised things like Indian corn, uh, pumpkins, uh, gourds, beans, and especially sugarcane. That was your sweetener come fall of the year. But they only found need to go to town twice a year. If they couldn't find it in town, the things that they couldn't produce, like gunpowder, shot, lead, and the biggest commodity, which was salt, and they couldn't produce it or find it in the swamp, they deemed it unnecessary. That's how independent these people were. That really is remarkable when you start thinking about it in those terms they would only go to town you know once or twice a year just to get what they couldn't grow and if they didn't they didn't have it right there uh, on the land they, they didn't use it how how did that become because certainly they had seen and tasted the good life uh at, at some point but this became their good life how do you think I that think happened that's the thing I, I think that was the good life you know many people nowadays who are old timers talk about the good old days some remember you know the end of the depression era as a good time in their life you know some people you'll ask about the great depression they'll say what depression right you know they lived very simply and independent of government entities uh, outsiders giving them charity i mean even if there was not money passed from the hand these people raised chickens they had eggs if you needed to help butcher hogs at the end of the year, uh, the other families and the community would come and help. If a farmer got down sick and he couldn't bring his cotton in or tobacco or corn, other families around the area would step up and help that family. I mean, they were they were very fortunate to have that those family ties in the communities. But I think before that, many of those people had it pretty hard. You look at the Ulster Scots that came to the, the Carolinas and to Virginia. I mean, they were viewed as the lower, lower end of society. That's why many of them were pushed to the brink of what was then the colonies, past the Appalachian Mountains, and you're in uncharted lands. That was the same thing when they came south. This was a, a lost frontier is what I call it. We yeah. talk about... Alaska being the last frontier, the Wild West as being the western frontier, but this is the lost frontier. It's a place we don't talk about very much or that we see written about in a lot of literature. Yeah, I would agree with that. You stand on Madison's front porch out there in Virginia. They say, you know, when he looked out there and he saw the Blue Ridge, that was the end of, of the earth. You know, it was the end of what they knew, uh, and he could see it from right off his porch. They knew it was there, but what you're talking about is so much different. You, no one saw this land. 
Uh, no one thought about it. And of course, when you got there, it was just about impassable even back then. But yet there's an entire culture that thrived down there. When the pandemic hit and we, we went into COVID lockdown, I'm guessing your experience was different than a lot of people. How has this knowledge that you've learned of the land and of of this this way of living, how did that shape your experience when we locked down what little we did, but when we locked down with um, with COVID? I'll tell you, the, the rest of the world did their thing, and I, I went into the woods. And it was during that time I spent a lot of time in river bottoms and swamps and piney woods areas, and uh, we leased some hunting acreage up in northern Coffee County, I spent a lot of time in the water in the woods just listening and learning, teaching myself. Because sometimes if you sit still and ponder enough, the answer just comes to you. And the question I was asking or the many questions I asked were, well, how did people use this? Uh, what did they do? How did they survive this? How did they get through this? And all it takes is sitting there and relearning it. I mean, it just comes to you naturally. I think that's us as humans. If we put down all of what we know, uh, modernity, the things around us in the modern age, and we just sit, we'll very quickly learn how our forebears lived and what they taught themselves and learned themselves. Medicine. Let's talk about medicine. Let's talk about the natural remedies uh, that are out there in that swamp and that are right underneath us. What did you learn about that? Well, as far as that goes, I've studied on it a good bit. Uh, those weren't things necessarily that I tried, so to speak. But <laughs> I, yeah, you definitely no. wouldn't want to yeah. try some of them. Right. <laughs> they had some curiosities back then. In fact, I was just talking with my grandfather about this yesterday. Uh, you know, turpentine. Turpentine was... Uh, a do-all medicine. You pour it over sugar, and that helped with ailing a cough or if you had pneumonia. Uh, turpentine for snake bites, for bee stings. My grandpa's told me before that even on livestock, you know, we get yellow flies and deer flies real bad around May through early July down here. You can't go near a creek bottom or a swamp and not be swarmed by the things. So you can only imagine how bad it is on livestock. And with horses and cattle, if they get bad around their ears, you can take that turpentine and lather their ears with it. The flies won't mess with them. But things like, uh, for instance, ground itch or what some people call foot itch, uh, you can take a green walnut while the fruit is still green, split it in half and rub it on your foot, and that's supposed to help that. As far as cuts and scrapes, if it's bleeding and you want to stop the bleeding, use spider webs. But there was all sorts of uh, curiosities, too, that they used. Uh, for instance, down around Okefenokee, uh, my old friend Johnny Hickox, who passed away a couple years ago, he lived in the swamp all his life. But he's been uh, seen and heard telling about before that for typhoid fever, uh, one of his foster sisters got r bad and sick with it. And uh, they split toads open, hung them around their neck like a poultice, and the doctor wouldn't have gave a dime for a few days earlier, but apparently it worked. Now, whether it was the toads or the, you know, the quackery medicine, some people might call it, whatever it was, it worked for these people. It may have just been a fluke, but. 
and they they, survived. They were believers. Yeah, they survived and they thrived, uh, which is so incredible to think about. You know, we're talking they had a hundred years back. Yeah, they had a faith that was unwavering in the things that they believed in, and I don't believe that's just their actual religious faith. I believe that's just in their daily life. You know, with faith there is hope, and these people had to have hope sometimes because that's all they had. How is it for a naturalist? Now, you're in your 20s, right, Chris, if I remember yes, right? Yes, I'll be 25 in April. How is that? I mean, a lot of guys run off to, to school. They become engineers. They become whatever, plumbers. They become yardmen. They become all kinds of things who listen to this station. But naturalist and, uh, and cultural anthropologist, uh, self-taught, self-studied, uh, that's just not one you hear about. How does that work out for a guy in his 20s? Uh, have you found love? Have you found someone that is just as fascinated in all of this as you are? Because I know someone is wanting me to ask that question right now. Oh, yes, yes. She uh, is a teacher <laughs> over in Ware County, but her studies are more towards uh, British history. She especially focuses on the loyalist, uh, which is where her family lines go back to. Her family's been in Georgia a little bit longer than mine has, uh, even back to the years of Oglethorpe and the wow. Delegal family that settled on St. Simons. Well, that but might have been an uncomfortable family reunion if you go that far back. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe but, so. But, you know, I think that's great. I mean, uh, there, there is somebody for everyone, and it's just wonderful to hear that and uh, to know that you're doing well. What, how, how can people get involved in this who want to come down and, and see what life was like on the Okefenokee Swamp. How can they come down there and do that with you? Well, during the week, at least for the, the first part of the week, you can usually find me at Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge, the entrance in Folkestone. Uh, I work there at Okefenokee Adventures, like I said, as a guide. They can come out and take a regular guided tour with us, or they can go on an extended excursion. Uh, that can be four hours, or we can custom fit it. I will say it takes more than an hour and a half to see that swamp, and there's only so much I can give in an hour and a half, but trust me, if we got on a boat for a few hours, there'll be no shortage of conversation. There's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of things to talk about, but as for how they can get involved in this, my dream and my goal for this is to one day have a, a learning center established somewhere in this region of Georgia right now that just doesn't seem possible for between work and finances and things but we're working towards that little by little and as of recent uh, I've talked with Miss Sarah Ross who is with the Wormslow Institute yesterday this is the newest thing for me there are a lot of firsts with this project but this one in particular I believe is the most interesting the coolest to me is in South Georgia a little more than a century ago, rice was being grown here. And I don't mean rice that you have patties and have to irrigate the fields and open up dams and dikes. This was a type of hill rice. Now, it's called gopher rice. Gopher rice is virtually an unknown thing now. You ask people in South Georgia, do you used to grow rice down here? They look at you kind of clueless. But my fifth great-grandfather grew it in Coffee County in the 1860s and 70s. It's a type of hill rice that you plant like you would corn, keep it slightly damp. This will be the first time in over a century that this has been grown in this region. 
And I'm thankful that Miss Ross is helping me to acquire those seeds. Uh, she's also with the University of Georgia's Research Center over there. They focus on heirloom variety crops. So I'm very grateful that they're assisting me with getting the seed to me. But this is just one of many things that the project is trying to do. Because sometimes it's not just writing things down in a book. It's presenting and providing tangible things for people to hold and to learn. And in this case, consume. Uh, when we get the first crop off of this rice, it'll be the first time me and a few buddies, anybody has eaten this in over a century in this part of the state. So there are big things in the works for this project. And I'm hoping more and more for the public to become involved in the future. We're offering living history programs. Uh, we as living historians or reenactors come out and we basically set up a day in the life of pioneers in this area at different places. February 5th, we'll be in Alapaha, Georgia, at the Gaskins Forest Education Center. And uh, January 29th, I'll be over in Waycross at the Okefenokee Heritage Center at the historic Hilliard House presenting talks on the people that lived here. So there's always something going on. And the best way they can follow along uh, with what you're doing is the Wiregrass uh, Ecological and Cultural Project right there on Facebook. We'll quick link to it uh, so folks can follow along. We did a show in Season 3, and I had Ian Quasar on, and Ian was talking about Flight 19, the TBMs that disappeared in the Okefenokee Swamp. Chris, if you could find those, uh, there's a lot of people that would be greatly appreciative. Do you know the story? I know the story. I followed a little bit. You know, they talked about them going missing in the Bermuda Triangle, and then some people say they might have rerouted and went further north, like over the swamp. I'll tell you, if I find the planes, you'll be the first to know. Yeah, you do that. Well, you know, I had Ian on years ago, and he said, just so matter-of-factly, he said, no, no, he said, they're in the Okefenokee Swamp. He said, that mystery, I, I solved that years ago. And he backs it up with early radar uh, findings that the Navy had. Uh, we're sure enough, if you look at that, it, it's right over the swamp. And the, the, the eeriest thing he said, and this, this is in season three, you can hear it. He talks about one of the widows waking up after a dream uh, where she could see her husband propped up against a tree. But the land was moving. It was undulating. And, and I asked him, I said, you know, that's kind of a bizarre story. It's a bit, uh, how, do you, how do you quantify someone's dream where they see their spouse taking his last breath, perhaps, against a tree with undulating land. And he said, well, it's evidence. It's all evidence. Whatever it is, it's evidence. Whether it's part of a faith, like you described earlier in these people, or, or whatever it is, it's still evidence. And I, that always stuck with me. You talk about the faith of these people. You talk about their beliefs. And I don't think hearing something like that would be too far-fetched for these people. These were a hardy people, uh, both in faith and in their own personal constitution. I mean, they, they had it together. And I'm so happy that uh, you're able to continue this work and, and keep these stories alive. Chris, I, I applaud you. It's just wonderful stuff that you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. I surely do. Where do you want to be in five to seven years with this? What, what is your wildest dream as we wrap things up on this particular segment with you? What, what, do, you, what are you looking forward to? Aside from rice, my goal is to hopefully acquire some amount of acreage, preferably on a flat woods area, very similar to 
where these people would have inhabited and to establish a, a learning center, like I mentioned, and hopefully have an ecological area. That's the thing. I want to tie the land and the people together. Not only are you studying the land, the creatures that live there, the plants that grow there, but also learning about the people that live there and how they live there. And by doing such, we would have to have either original buildings or reproduction buildings, but I want to recreate a period farmstead, 1850 to 1870, to where we can host living history events to be able to show people how these folks actually lived and dwelled in swamps and the wiregrass country. And the crops that they grew. I mean, the and the crops the hill and rice. the livestock. And this hill rice, we don't know much about it. I mean, this could be one of the next great superfoods uh, that my wife is so into that I always have to eat, like quinoa and other stuff that nobody ever eats or that they would use to pave roads with if they were smarter than trying to eat it. Hill rice. What, what do you think? What's your prediction? Pretty good? You think it's going to be tasty with a little butter? Or, or how are you going to prep this as you? I think it'll be pretty good, but I'm thinking a fitting meal and appropriate for the people would be to throw some guinea in there and have guinea and rice the first time around. Of course, try it by itself. But no, uh, if this turns out, we're in the early stages of it, of course, haven't even put it in the ground yet. But if it turns out, and in a few years, we can grow quite a bit of acreage of this, it could turn into another success story like that of the uh, Carolina gold rice. Right. which is a lowland rice. You have to irrigate it uh, with patties and all. But that has become a big thing. And culinary chefs all over the South have utilized it in dishes of their own, and that's how it gets recognition. So in the most unorthodox of ways, you're preserving a culture by preserving the food ways, in a sense. I just think it's fascinating work that you're doing. I'm, I'm thinking of our own our own garden I tried some stuff and I, and I, and one, one time I planted sweet potatoes and these sweet potatoes, they just took off. I mean, I couldn't believe how easily and how abundant they were. And you think, well, you know, the guys that lived here a hundred years ago, they weren't growing lavender. No, they were growing sweet potatoes. They were growing stuff that just really loved that soil. And I, and I wish you all of the success because it sounds like it sounds like what you're barking up is a tree worth climbing. I mean, this is going to be uh, something really exciting, and I look forward to to hearing how it goes. Chris, thanks for coming on and sharing hey, your well, story. Thanks for having me. Anything else you want to throw in there? Any last minute words of wisdom that we can take home with us today? Be simple of mind and kind of heart. Be good to your neighbor and do the best you can, where you can, when you can, with what you have. Chris Adams from the Wiregrass Ecological and Cultural Project. You, sir, are a master of your art, and I'm so glad you came on History Worth Saving. Well, friends, this concludes this particular episode of History Worth Saving. You can follow along on the newsletter at historyworthsaving.com. My thanks to Chris Adams and my thanks to you for being here. If you're a fan of our Facebook page, we appreciate it. Tell your friends about us. Until next time, this is History Worth Saving.